Our sermon text this evening is from 2 John, the second letter of John, which is a brief letter, it's 13 verses, one of the shortest books in the Bible. In fact, I don't know, maybe it is the shortest book in the Bible. Well, hear now the word of God. The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all those who have known the truth because of the truth which abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and love. I rejoice greatly that I have found some of your children walking in truth as we received commandment. Uh, from the Father. And now I plead with you, lady, not as though I wrote a new commandment to you, but that which we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. This is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment that as you have heard from the beginning, you should walk in it. For as many deceiver, for, for many deceivers have gone out into the world who do not confess Jesus Christ is coming in the flesh. Flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. Look to yourself that we do not lose those things we worked for, but that we may receive a full reward. Whoever transgresses and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. He who abides in the doctrine of Christ is both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you, And does not bring this doctrine. Do not receive him into your house, nor greet him. For he who greets him shares in his evil deeds. Having many things to write to you, I did not wish to do so with paper and ink. But I hope to come to you and speak face to face, that our joy may be full. The children of your elect sister greet you. Amen. Let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you again for... Uh, the truth of your word, which we have now together before us, and ask you that by your word you might again illumine our path and that you might enable us uh, by the strength that it gives to walk in the ways of obedience. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I am uh, still committed to preaching the Old Testament in the evenings. The basic breakdown is New Testament morning, Old Testament evening. Uh, but I'm not enslaved to that either. There is there is room, there's freedom, uh, and uh, that's something I want to take advantage of. Exodus was a long book, and Leviticus will be a long book, and there will be a lot of details about the priesthood, uh, which is, it's difficult work, it's rewarding, but I thought it might be a good time to take just a brief break from that, and then in a few weeks resume our study of the Pentateuch, or the first five books of Moses, the first five books of the Bible. Uh, resuming with Leviticus. My plan is to preach 2 John, then 3 John, and then to preach Malachi, uh, which I think has tremendous relevance uh, to the, the modern situation, and then we will begin Leviticus. Years ago, I preached 1 John. That was a long time ago, uh, but I did preach it. 1 John is an incredible book. The main focus of the book uh, are the three main tests of genuine Christian experience. The first test is faith or belief, or walking in the truth, something like that, some variation of that, abiding and adhering in uh, true doctrine. First test then is faith, the second test is love, and the third test is obedience. 
And if these three things are true of you, then John says, you may be assured that you are a believer. When we come to Second John, uh, what we see that these three tests are still on his mind, and not surprisingly, because they form the central concerns of his main and major letter. But we are immediately confronted with a question. He says, the elder to the elect lady and her children. And the question we have is, who is the elect lady and who are her children? Is John an elder? Well, he was an elder, we know that, but is he the elder speaking to a household? A lady and her children? Possibly, but that is a bit awkward. Uh, for reasons, uh, a man speaking to a woman and his children and the love and the affection he has for them. It's awkward, but it also uh, misses really what he's saying that makes much better sense uh, of the epistle. Far more likely, the elect lady is a church. It's a local church, and her children are the members of the church. And, and when you realize that, the epistle makes total sense, and there isn't any sense of impropriety either. It also tells us, since this epistle is known as the epistle which concerns the subject of Christian hospitality, when he tells us not to entertain false teachers in our home, uh, he means not to let them actually into the church. He isn't speaking of our homes, although that might also be good advice. So the focus of the letter, it could be said, and has often been said, is Christian hospitality. But I would not agree with that statement. I see the issue a little bit more like this. John addressing a local church, the elect lady and her children. And here I'm following John Stott in his commentary. John is addressing, number one, the the true basis of Christian fellowship. And number two, at the same time, warning against the greatest danger which threatens it. And so his interest is actually in, uh, in the fellowship of Christians within the church. How it is maintained and then what to be avoided. The things which threaten it or the thing which threatens it. And so we'll look at this letter along those lines. And the first thing you notice, which really stands out in this letter, is the emphasis on truth. That is clearly then the test he wants to emphasize. Remember, the three tests of truth or, excuse me, faith, uh, obedience and love. It's, It's the test of faith. Our belief in Doctrine, sound sound doctrine. Although we also see him speaking of love and obedience in verses 4 through 6, obedience and commandments seen as synonyms. So again, he really has all three tests in view, but the primary test he wants to emphasize is faith. He speaks uh, of the truth some five times directly, verse 1, 2, 3, and 4. But if we include the words doctrine as uh, a parallel and deceivers, as uh, the opposite in our list, the number increases from 5 to 10 in these 13 verses. And so it is clear that a central concern is that we, as Christians, in a Christian fellowship of a local church, continue to walk in the church, abide in the doctrine of Christ, and resist the error of the deceivers for the sake of our fellowship, for the sake of maintaining our fellowship. Well, the next question uh, that we we want to know is what is the truth he is concerned for us to believe and to walk in? That is, what is the doctrine of Christ, as he puts it in, in another place in the letter? 
And it's clear that the truth John is speaking of has two main points of focus, and both have to do with Christ. On the one hand, we may simply speak of the doctrine of Christ as, uh, as the teaching of Christ. Christ's doctrine, or Christ's teaching. The apostles, as you remember, were commanded to teach all that Christ had commanded in the work of making disciples, and that is precisely what they were doing. It's also precisely what uh, the church had believed and the false teachers were denying and seeking to lead the church away from. In a very general sense, then, that is the truth. It's all of the teaching of Christ. But more narrowly, the doctrine of Christ is, is uh, the specific point which the deceivers and the false teachers were denying, that Christ had come in the flesh. And this is evident in 1 John chapter 2, verse 18 and following, which we read earlier in the scripture reading, and it's the same error in view here. For many deceivers have gone out into the world who do not confess Jesus Christ is coming in the flesh. This was uh, the Gnostic teaching which was ravaging the early church and which John... The apostle of love, the apostle of Christian hospitality, had to constantly combat. And, and even to the point, as we'll see where he says, don't you let these men into the church. This was a, a central aspect of John's teaching and of his understanding and experience of the gospel. If you think of his prologue as he introduces the gospel, you can see how central this idea, this idea that the gospel can be summarized or Christian belief can be summarized in the simple phrase, Christ has come in the flesh. That is precisely what John emphasizes in his prologue. That the word, the eternal word, which dwelt with God in the beginning and who also was God, became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. This fleshly person, Jesus of Nazareth, was the very word of God dwelling or tabernacling among us. And the whole of his, uh, his uh, not his epistle, but his gospel, the gospel of John, is in essence John's testimony of the glory that he beheld when the word dwelt among us. It is a testimony concerning, again, the simple phrase which the false teachers were denying, and that is, Christ has come in the flesh. This fleshly person, Jesus Christ. And believing that, in essence, is what it is to be a Christian, what it means to be a Christian. It means that we believe that Jesus Christ is the Word of God who dwelt among us. And it is this person, Jesus Christ, the God-man, in whom we find salvation and eternal life, and in whom we, we behold the very glory of God. And so that, that, that is uh, Christian doctrine. That is the doctrine of Christ. That is the doctrine which John was contending for. That's the truth that he is speaking of in Second John, and which we believing makes us Christians. And yet, again, it was the exact teaching which was being distorted then, and uh, let me add, is being distorted now. Have you ever heard of the historical quest for Jesus, or the quest for the historical Jesus, I think it's sometimes put? Well, it's only the same, uh, it's nothing, I mean, but the same error, only in reverse. The earlier heretics were denying the humanity of Jesus Christ, that the divine logos came in the flesh. But the modern uh, heresy denies that the fleshly person was divine. But they're both equally wrong. They both rob something from the formula that Christ has come in the flesh, that is, the Son of God, the eternal second person of the Trinity, 
has come and dwelt among us. They both deny something that is essential to this person, Jesus Christ and the salvation he brings. Again, Jesus Christ is the Son of God come in the flesh. And it is believing that that you have fellowship with the Son and with the Father and with the church, as John says at the beginning of 1 John. And anyone who claims otherwise is a deceiver and an antichrist. But then the next point is this, having defined what the truth is, again, Christ has come in the flesh, our next concern is to define the relationship between the uh, love and the truth, which is something that John speaks about throughout uh, the letter. We see this, for instance, in verses 1 and 2. To the elect lady and her children whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who have known the truth, Because the truth which abides in us will be with us forever. Or again, in verses 4 and 5, I rejoice greatly that I have found some of your children walking in truth as we received commandment from the Father. And now I plead with you, lady, not as though I wrote a new commandment to you, but uh, that we have had from the beginning that we love one another. In both places, verses 1 and 2 and verses 4 and 5, he connects our belief in the truth with our walking in love. What John says first in verse 1 is that the ones whom he loves, the apostle of love, are those who are walking in the truth. Don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that I love anyone else. I, I love these and I love all of these who are walking in the truth. And those who are walking in the truth are the ones that John in turn tells to practice love. John, uh, John says in verse 1 that he loves the children of the elect lady in the truth. And also all who have known the truth. What John is saying is that the truth forms the basis of Christian love. Which is another way of saying that it forms the basis of Christian fellowship. Which is a fellowship of love. What binds us together and makes us brothers is our shared belief in the truth. It is because we both believe the same things about Jesus that we regard one another, not only as fellow believers, but as brothers and thus as recipients, worthy recipients of our love. And can I I not love he whom Christ loves and who loves Christ? Yes, John says, I love them and all who are like them, all Christ's little ones, all who walk in the truth as his obedient And faithful disciples. My heart is bound to them. As to my own family. And even more so. Furthermore John says. My love for them cannot fail. Because the truth. That dwells in and enlivens all true Christians. He says will be with us forever. The love cannot fail. For between believers, because the truth which animates it and forms the basis of it can never pass away or fail. And what that means is that Christian fellowship can never fail either, since it is formed and maintained by that which is itself eternal. And beyond that, I might also say that this tells me as a Christian that I may not seek to form a true bond of Christian love or seek Christian fellowship with anyone at all who does not believe and obey the truth, who is not walking in the truth, for that would be to build upon sand. And yet how often the truth, that is doctrinal precision about Jesus Christ, 
is seen as the obstacle or the barrier to greater Christian unity and love. Not in the mind of the Apostle John. In his mind, true Christian love, again, was formed on the basis of proper Christian belief. But as we come to verses 4 through 11, we arrive at what is really the heart of the letter. Verses 4 through 6 describe, as John Stott calls it, the inner life of the local fellowship. And verses 7 through 11 describe, to quote Stott again, the doctrinal danger which threatens it from without. Again, verses 4 through 6, the inner life of the local fellowship. Verses 7 through 11, the doctrinal dangers which threaten it from without. Again, this is not so much an epistle about Christian hospitality as it is about the fellowship of the church. Maintaining it and protecting it. Verse 4, John speaks of those who walk in the truth. He says, I rejoice greatly that I have found some of your children walking in the truth. That is his apostle viewing the church from afar. Seeing that they were obeying the teaching of Christ. And this is something which makes the heart of every pastor rejoice, not just John. To see his hearers walking in the truth, which means not only believing it, but walking in step with the truths of the gospel. But as part of walking in the truth and speaking to those who already are, he exhorts them again with this new commandment, which is really an old commandment. Namely, that we love one another. Love which is defined like this in verse 6. This is love. That we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment that, as you have heard from the beginning, you should walk in it. Love is seen and defined by John as walking in Christ's commandments. Wait a second. I thought love was the commandment. And yet love is seen as walking and obeying, walking in and obeying the commandments. Well, let us try to understand what he's saying. He says, he's saying, in essence, that these are two sides of the same coin. Walking in love, obeying Christ's commandments. For the man who has love for Christ and for his brother will keep all the commandments. All ten commandments. Scripture says this repeatedly, most notably in Romans chapter 13. But on the other side of that coin, in keeping the commandments, what the man will be doing is practicing love, both love to God and love to his neighbor. But certainly when we view love as a commandment, as obedience which is wrought or offered to a commandment, and it is the man who is obeying the commandment, who is walking in love, seeing love like that rules out the more sentimental notions of love as a mere emotion. That is not what scripture and certainly not what John is speaking of. But to place love in the realm of obedience to a commandment is to place love in the realm of deliberate and willful action. It is, again, he says, to do what Christ commands. It is to do what is best for my brother. And John says as much in his first epistle, to love not in word, but to love in deed. 1 John chapter 3, verse 18. And it is this, Uh, As John Stott, uh, to, to use this quote again, says, it is this that is the inner life of Christian fellowship. The inner life of the local church. It is a fellowship of love and obedience and belief in the truth and nothing less than that. And you see, 
This matter of Christian love and obedience to this commandment is something which requires beseeching. He says, or pleading, depending on your translation, and now I plead with you, lady. It must have been beseeching in the King James. I go back and forth between King James and New King James. But there's real danger, John is saying, that the love of the saints for one another might grow cold. Just as uh, the danger exists, Christ tells us in Revelation, that our love for him might grow cold. Not only that, our zeal for the truth. Oh, it's really nothing new, John says. But it it bears repeating. It needs to be said over and over if the church is to abide and maintain her position and not fall away into the position of the deceivers and the, the false teachers into a spirit of apostasy. I beseech you, I plead with you. Let there be a grave concern to maintain a spirit of love and obedience to all Christ's commandments walking in the truth of his word. That's what a Christian church looks like. But the other side of this, as we come to verses 7 through 11, must be considered as well. And in many ways, this is where the real value of the the, the letter appears. For in many ways, in verses 1 through 6, he's just been repeating earlier emphases that were found in 1 John. But when we come to verses 7 through 11, we find here is a real contribution. Here is in many ways something which we don't find in 1 John and helps us to understand the ways in which we are to live out the spirit of truth and love and obedience. What does it mean to walk in the truth in the midst of many deceivers? Well, part of this, he tells us, involves simply avoiding them. Avoid those who do not adhere to the truth. And so our position is not only positive. Exercise genuine love for those who are walking in the truth, rejoice with them in their obedience, but the teaching is negative as well. Again, we must not only walk in the truth, but we must realize at the same time that a great many people do not. We must realize, in other words, as he says in verse 7, for many deceivers have gone out into the world who do not confess Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. And this is something which the church has ignored for too long to her peril. We live in a state of pretended safety, as though no forces ever sought to harm us, or no forces ever could. But that ignores the simple fact, which John says here, that there are many deceivers in this world, men who hate the truth, and men who are, as a result, hell-bent on deceiving those who do believe it. And so what do they do? They seek an audience with the faithful. They are not content to teach those outside the church, but they seek an audience of those within. Wolves in sheep's clothing, Jesus calls them. Here is the bane of the church, John says. The faithless deceivers who would lead astray, even the elect, if he could. And the faithful in every age have always had to contend against such forces. And to them, John offers two admonitions or two warnings in verses 8 Through 11, the first admonition or warning has to do with the faithful themselves. And it can be broken into three parts. Verse 8, look to yourself, number one. Two, hold on to what you have, that we do not lose the things we work for. Number three, but press on for your reward, but that we may receive a full reward. Verse 8, look to yourselves, hold on to what you have, press on for your reward. And if you are doing these things, you will do well. 
But added to this is a reminder of what the consequences of believing a, uh, believing a lie are in verse 9. Namely, losing God. Whoever transgresses and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. He who abides in the doctrine of Christ is both the Father and the Son. That's what's really at stake. When you, when you stop walking in the truth, you don't only lose your Christian fellowship and your place in the church, but you lose God himself. And yet at the same time, he defines what our, our uh, relation to the truth or our posture to the truth ought to be concerning God's Son. The truth, again, simply is that Christ has come in the flesh. And John says, in the presence of false teachers, who are always seeking to add to the truth or to progress beyond it, he says, it is enough simply to abide in it. He who abides in the doctrine of Christ is both the Father and the Son. Do you, do you see the difference in positions? Abiding in Christ versus those who would race ahead and go beyond even Christ himself. To the church, John says... Hold on to it. Hold on to this doctrine. And if that is what you are doing, I assure you the false teachers will have precious little to say to you. It is those who want to progress beyond this teaching, those who are not content and want to seem wise, who fall prey to every new teaching and every new heresy. The superior knowledge. That's what the Gnostics were offering. And that's what you'll find in every seminary today. Superior knowledge. A new perspective on Paul. That was the big thing when I was in seminary. But it's always something like that. And it's always those who want to progress beyond the old ways who fall prey to it. But not those who are abiding in the vine. Not those who are content always and only to have Jesus. And to abide in his doctrine and his teaching. They are safe. And they will be happy For John says, he who abides in the teaching, he who delights in the teaching, he who sees this teaching as a matter of eternal delight and wonder, he is happy because he has God. He not only has the Son, but the Father as well. And he can never lose them. He's walking in the truth. And so he enjoys fellowship with the Father and the Son and all true Christians besides. But those who are so eager to transgress this, John says, or to move beyond it, as some translations put it, those are the ones who inevitably and invariably fall into apostasy. But having defined our relationship to the truth in that way, and and warning us of the reality and, and the dangers of false teaching, He then tells us in verses 10 and 11 what our posture is to be now to the false teachers themselves. Again, let us first of all recognize that they do exist and that they are in the church right now. They are in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church right now. They are in the seminaries gaining traction. What are we to do about them? Let us not be naive first of all, but beyond that. He says, keep them out. They have no place in the church. Verses 10 and 11. If anyone comes to you, that is to the local church, or let's say a presbytery meeting, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine, do not receive him into your house nor greet him. Now you see why people think that has to do with Christian hospitality, and it does in a sense, but he's talking about the church. 
Do not give him your pulpit. Do not listen to what he has to say. For he who greets him shares in his evil deeds. Keep them out. It really is that simple. Abide in the truth. Keep the false teachers out. Those who seek an audience to promote their false teachings. Do not listen to them. In essence, added to the admonition then to watch out for ourselves is the admonition to to watch out and to be on the lookout for the false teachers as well. Realize, as he says in verse 7, that there are many who would seek to rob you of the truth and thus to unsettle and ruin your Christian communion. Don't let anyone do that. If anyone comes to you seeking to promote doctrine which is not sound, you have to realize what is at stake. You can't be so hospitable that you fall prey to their heresy. This, I think, has even more relevance today than it did in the first century. In the first century, you had itinerant preachers. In the, in the Great Awakening, first and second, you had itinerant preachers. Well, you don't have that today. I remember the charismatic church you did. When I was in the charismatic church, you had men who would come through. They always asked for an offering, too. A love offering, they called it. But we don't have that here. Our preachers are well vetted. And yet, what about the internet preacher? We've never had greater availability or access to preaching or sermons than we do today. What John is saying, you have to be discerning. You have to be incredibly discerning. And especially recognize, if anything, the importance of having preaching in the local church. Because that is preaching which is vetted. When you go out into the world and you click on the streaming of the internet, who who knows what you might find. You need to realize, again, as John says, many deceivers have gone out into the world who do not confess Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. And their great desire is to lead you into ruin. What is at stake? Again, looking at the church as a local fellowship, as a household, is not only the communion of the saints, looking now to the end of the passage, verse 11, he says, For he who greets him shares in his evil deeds. It is not only, therefore, that your communion and your fellowship, which would be disrupted and ruined, which is very dear to you, but also, as John says, the very real danger that you would in doing so be participating in his evil deeds, which means you would no longer be obeying the truth yourself or walking in it. And so for as zealous as we are to maintain solid Christian communion, based around the truth, love and obedience to Christ, we are equally zealous, John says, again, the apostle of love. We ought to be equally zealous to keep out those who do not share these same commitments. One of the things that I've said before, I'll say again. And that is that the peace and the purity of the church is a fragile thing. That's what John is saying here. It's a precious thing which ought to be not only maintained, but protected. Something which could be lost. And recognize who your enemy is. Satan would do his best to throw the church into a state of confusion and hostility. And how often he has. He would throw the church even into apostasy if he could. This is what he's been doing since the beginning. And one of the things that I would notice about the modern church is that she's stopped heeding these words of John. 
she's given into a spirit of hospitality and love that is not discerning. Which John says in reality is no love at all. Love is based upon informed by the truth. If you do not love one in the truth, then the love you possess is not a Christian love. This is love, John says, that we walk in his commandments. And that we are concerned to have fellowship with those who do as well. But the final thing that we see John saying in verse 12 is this. And this really sums up the whole uh, thrust of the epistle, which as I say is not so much an epistle on Christian hospitality as it is on Christian fellowship. Having many things to write to you, I I did not wish to do so with paper and ink, but I hope to come to you and speak face to face that our joy may be full. Do you realize what John is saying here? He is affirming the very thing that he's been teaching, the value in his eyes of fellowship with these Christians and participating in their fellowship. This is what he longed to partake of. It was not enough for him to write to them from a distance. We find a similar uh, sentiment often in Paul's letters, that what he really longs for, as he says at the beginning of Romans, is not just to write to them, preach to them from a distance, but to be with them that he might impart some spiritual gift, and that they might in turn do the same. I want to be a part of this fellowship. I want to join you in walking in the truth and obedience with my dear brothers and sisters in Christ. And this is what ought to animate every true Christian. Our desire to come together can be expressed like John's words here. He says... Until I can do this, my joy is not full. There's something that's missing. There's something that's wrong. I hope to come to you and speak to you face to face that our joy might, that our joy may be full. Again, here's the problem with the internet preacher. I won't even call it preaching. You're just listening to sermons. What's missing? The face to face. You're just listening to sermons. But you're not experiencing preaching. You're not experiencing Christian fellowship. That's the thing the Christian really needs. It's what he depends upon. That is the practical theology that John is expressing here. He wants to be caught up in the inner life of the local fellowship of the church. The love which I have for Christ, he says, animates in me a love and a longing for my brothers and sisters in Christ. And I cannot be happy. I cannot be joyful until I can partake of that. And so I ask you in closing, do you know what John is describing? Do you love the saints as John did? And do you have a similar concern and a zeal to maintain the purity of Christian fellowship as he did? Are you animated by such feelings? You know, it it isn't a bad idea to ask yourself from time to time, taking stock of your soul, why am I here? And did I even want to come? If it isn't because you wanted to see the people who are here, then what John is saying here is alien to you. John is telling the Christians together to walk in the truth, which means they ought to, as a corollary, love one another. And this is something which John says is to be done corporately. Not the Lone Ranger, not me and Jesus, but me and Jesus and you and you and you and you. All of us together walking in the truth. And so I ask you, will you join me in heeding these admonitions, both positively to obey this old commandment, that we love one another, and negatively to, as he says in verse 8, look to yourselves that we do not lose the things which we work for, but that we may receive a full reward.
Whoever transgresses and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ is not of God. He who abides in the doctrine of Christ is both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine, do not receive him into your house nor greet him. For he who greets him shares in his evil deeds. Amen. And let us uh, respond to God's word in praise. By standing together and singing a cappella, not hymn uh, uh, tune number one, but actually the second tune, hymn 285, the second tune.